From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The U.S. Supreme Court has just ruled on a Colorado case. At issue, when do online posts cross the line into stalking? Then, in the November election, Colorado voters chose to decriminalize psilocybin, also known as magic mushrooms, and it's led the state into uncharted territory. What's happening now and what the future could eventually look like may be two different things. Later, food often creates connection with family, with friends, with community. It can also shape the immigration stories of people here in Colorado, like this food truck owner from Lebanon who enjoyed cooking with her mom every day. Every time I make some dish, I fall in love with it over and over. I want people in Colorado to really try that real authentic. The success of Colorado Public Radio relies on support from active members. Members like you are necessary in order for CPR to be your source for in-depth news and music discovery. Our fiscal year ends June 30th. You can help keep this service strong and help keep funding goals on target with your gift today. Help fuel news and music on Colorado Public Radio now and in the year to come at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The U.S. Supreme Court has just ruled on a Colorado case that examines when threatening social media posts cross the line into stalking. Our justice reporter, Allison Sherry, is reviewing that ruling right now and will join us a little later to break it down. But first, it's been eight months now since Colorado voted to legalize psychedelic mushrooms. That has a lot of us wondering, how's it going? We're going to take a deeper dive into that. CPR's Andrew Kenny learned that what's happening now and what the future could eventually look like may be very different. In an apartment near downtown Denver, Ashley Ryan runs a small wooden baton around the edge of a Tibetan singing bowl and strikes it once, twice, before the tone she wants rings out. So singing bowls might be incorporated in a healing journey, meditation, mindfulness. It's one of the little things that helps people relax after they've eaten psychedelic mushrooms in this airy, sunlit loft with views of the South Platte River. Ryan calls herself a psychedelic guide, working with people to set a goal for a mushroom trip and then helping them through it. There is space to sit outside. Um, as well as just kind of go for a walk. Whatever people need to heal is what I offer them. She's a former teacher who says she found happiness through her own careful use of mushrooms and now wants to help others. She doesn't have a license or anything, but it's become a business. She's guided dozens of trips for fees ranging into the hundreds of dollars. And that includes not just individuals, but couples, um, small groups of friends. And sometimes it's just a friend calling and telling me, hey, I want to take these mushrooms. Can you come over and hang out with me and watch me and make sure that I'm safe? Her business and others have taken off since Proposition 122 passed. The initiative opened a narrow window for people like herself to offer guided experiences and even supply the mushrooms with little fear of being arrested. 
as long as they're not specifically charging for the mushrooms themselves. 122 gave us the opportunity to use our voice and to share the healing power of mushrooms with others. But she and others worry that's all going to change as state lawmakers start getting involved in the mushroom market. The House Finance Committee will come back to order. We have one bill left on our calendar, that being Senate Bill 290. They passed a law this year that was meant in part to clamp down on gray market psychedelic businesses like Ashley Ryan's. Here's Senate President Steve Fenberg. It, it was important to us that we didn't totally cut off personal use and sharing. But we also wanted to make sure that we had fidelity to the, the fact that Proposition 122 asked the state to regulate these services. Prop 122 says the state's going to create a system of regulated, licensed healing centers that'll eventually provide access to supervised mushroom use, kind of like an official version of what Ashley Ryan's already doing. But that won't happen for nearly two years, and Representative Judy Amabile worries that unregulated businesses will explode in the meantime. My preference would have been to stand up this regulated framework first and see how that goes before we also had the unregulated framework. But um, that's not what the voters wanted. And that's not what the voters voted for. Supporters of the new state law updating Colorado's mushroom rules say their big goal right now is to slow down that unregulated market, to make sure people aren't creating a very public industry without any state control. And Fenberg says that's important if Colorado doesn't want to risk a federal crackdown. The sort of unspoken agreement since marijuana legalization is as long as you were regulating it in a mature and professional manner to avoid worst case situations, the federal government generally is going to assume that you are doing your part and not allowing this to get out of control. The new law will still let Ryan charge for her time and give away the drugs, but starting July 1st, she won't be allowed to advertise her services in any fashion, even if it's unpaid. Ryan's worried she'll have to scrub her website and go silent. I'm wondering what's going to happen next as much as everyone else. The way the law is currently written with the new regulations for community healing, I see it as going underground again, yeah. Even once those state regulations are finally in place, Ryan says she's not interested in getting licensed. She believes the law was supposed to allow for informal psychedelic practitioners like her. Others in the industry worry costs or qualifications could keep them from getting licensed. Travis Tyler Fluck teaches people how to microdose and gives them psilocybin. He thinks the state should embrace people like him. The most intelligent thing that, that Colorado can do is foster a environment of like motivating people to be as visible as possible with what they're doing. Because all most of this work is no stranger to the underground. And that's where a lot of harms are done. Fluck believes he'll be okay under the new law for now, but he's worried that business interests will try to muscle out unregulated operators like him in the long run. Once you allow industry in, and we're seeing this with medical cannabis, you know, the lobbyists come in and start chipping away at these personal freedoms. Now, what the regulated business of psilocybin will actually look like and what that means for the unregulated side will really be defined in the next year or so as the state's psychedelic advisory board makes recommendations for training and licensing. The first licenses could go out sometime around the end of 2024. 
I'm Andrew Kenny, CPR News. Andy joins me now to answer a few more questions about what's going on. Hi, Andy. Hey, Chandra. Well, I want to start with a question that came up for me while listening to your story. Now that they're decriminalized, how easy is it to get these psychedelic mushrooms? Well, let me start with just one fact, which is that it's still illegal to sell mushrooms. So mm. nobody's going to the store to get them. But it's now legal under state law to grow and possess and consume and even share psychedelic mushrooms as well as some other psychedelic drugs, uh, as long as it's basically for personal use. So I get the sense anecdotally that there's a lot more people growing these for fun. They see less legal risk to setting up a mushroom, grow in their closet and giving them away. Uh, they seem to be just more prevalent in certain social circles. At the same time, even though it is, like I said, illegal to sell them, people are still selling them illegally. <laughs> uh, if you go and you look on Facebook, for example, on the marketplace, you'll just find dozens of listings of people advertising mushrooms for sale. And mm. uh, some of those are scams. But I chatted with a few of the sellers, uh, and they said that even though they know they're breaking the law, they think they're less likely to get caught because they can now say, even if they get busted, they can say, oh, these are just my personal mushrooms. So there are a lot more people selling mushrooms illegally uh, since decriminalization happened. And then on top of that, there's this one more strain. I don't want to make it too, more, too much complicated, <laughs> but there's also this whole new kind of gray market of people who are like the person in the story, Ashley Ryan, who are calling themselves psychedelic guides, who are providing these kind of psychedelic related services that you pay them for. And then at the same time, when you pay them, say, $200 for their company, they're sharing, quote unquote, the drug with you. And that's actually legal under what Colorado has created now. So tons of new ways, some legal, some not quite legal to get psychedelics under Colorado's new state law. <laughs> wow. Mushrooms on Marketplace. Yes. I've heard it all. <laughs> uh, yes, indeed. <laughs> Sounds like an ad. To, to move on to where you left off in the feature, the state is also going to eventually allow fully regulated state-approved healing centers. When could yes. that happen? Well, so like we said, uh, the unregulated world is already here. But eventually the state's going to say, yes, you are allowed, you are formally allowed to open up a healing center, which is a place where people will go to pay to eat mushrooms and then have a psychedelic trip for however many hours, all under the supervision of a trained professional. So really not, not like retail marijuana, for example. Instead, that's going to be the really legal above ground way to get mushrooms. You go and hang out of this healing center. But before that can happen, before they can be regulated, the state has to decide how to regulate them. So basically from now through the end of 2024, we're going to see state agencies working with this psychedelic advisory board. Now you've heard it all to <laughs> figure out the rules and regulations for like, how do you train somebody who is a psychedelic regulated licensed mushroom guide? And, and uh, what'll be, what kind of fees do these healing centers pay? Um, and they'll also come up with rules for who can grow and test and store and distribute mushrooms for these healing centers. It's a lot. And my guess is that the first really legal regulated healing centers won't open until maybe 2025. And, uh, you know, that'll be quite a journey to get there. Wow. 
a new position out there that we had never heard of before. <laughs> Do we have any sense yet of what those facilities could end up looking like? Um, it's very early in the process. The only other state to pass a regime like this is Oregon. They have a similar kind of supervised psychedelic model. Mm-hmm. And they've just started opening up like the first facilities. The very first one was reportedly offering those kind of trips for more than $3,000. Wow. And one person I talked with from the Prop 122 effort here in Colorado said she really doesn't expect licensed trips to cost less than $1,000 here anytime soon. Why so expensive? A lot of it has to do with the amount of time involved and regulation. You know, Prop 122 envisions that when you go to this healing center in Colorado, you're going to have a preliminary meeting with the guide and set your intention. And then they're going to sit with you for potentially six to eight hours while you're on this psychedelic journey. And then you have to meet with them again to quote, integrate what you learned from the experience. So here, here's Tasha Poinsett who helped lead the Prop 122 campaign. You're really looking at hours of somebody's time who is trained and licensed. And that's a big part of what the cost is. It's not really the cost for the mushrooms themselves. She did say that there are indications that this stuff could get more affordable as the very new industry figures it out. But I think there's going to be some tension between these much more costly regulated centers that have to jump through all these hoops and the gray market where people can sell very similar services without any of those regulations. Now, in the story, you talked about lawmakers changing some of the details for legal psychedelics, Mm -hmm. especially for any businesses that spring up around it. Why are they getting involved? They, state lawmakers said they had to get involved because when voters passed Proposition 122 last year, it set up the broad strokes that we've been describing. But lawmakers said the details still needed some refining. So they passed this law that kind of changes some of the rules of this new psychedelic game. Now, what were their biggest concerns in passing these rules? Some of it was really technical, boring stuff, you know, moving responsibilities around between state agencies. They also delayed one of the big deadlines to give themselves more time, to give the state more time to set up the regulations. But they also really wanted to put the brakes on these unregulated gray market psychedelic guides who, you know, like the person from the story again, they want to discourage, state lawmakers want to discourage people from making a profession out of sharing psychedelics and guiding people through a trip without a license. They want you to get a license if you're doing that. <laughs> now, your story profiled a guide and someone who's teaching classes in microdosing. Yeah. I'm curious about the supply side of this. Did you talk to any growers? Where are they in all of this? Yeah, it's a really good question that we didn't get too deep into because obviously even these gray market guides have to get the mushrooms from somewhere. And what we learned is that People are growing mushrooms all over the place in their closet, sometimes reportedly in small warehouses. Uh, These cultivators are keeping it much more private because, like we said, it's still illegal to sell mushrooms. Um, Our our guide that we profiled, by the way, said that her cultivator shares them for free because they just love mushrooms. And apparently psychedelic mushrooms is an interesting twist are pretty cheap and easy to grow, especially compared to a drug like cannabis. It doesn't take that much power to grow mushrooms. It doesn't really smell that much. So police actually say it's kind of hard to find and stop growers. And even if you do, it's going to be really hard to prove, oh, were they selling mushrooms or were they just 
giving them away for free. <laughs> uh, I should mention, this was quite notable. The Summit Daily newspaper did this report on this guy in Dillon, Colorado, mm -hmm. who was arrested for giving away mushrooms. He tried to get around the regulations, allegedly, by saying, oh, you're giving me a donation of money and I'm giving you uh, a gift of drugs. But <laughs> the cops decided that didn't fly and that if you're receiving money and giving drugs, you're selling drugs. So <laughs> Sounds complicated. In general, so complicated. were the people you talked to who are involved in the world of psilocybin right now feeling excited for the future? Are they pessimistic, nervous? Uh Yes, all of the above. I mean, like, this is a brand, brand new world. We're one of the very first states. And a lot of the people I talked to, I would call them true believers that had some experience with psychedelics that they thought was positive and they want to share it. They are nervous, though, about how is the state going to set up these rules? Is this even going to work? Can you do all these different things we've been describing at once? And I do want to close out by saying that we don't know the answers. And we really don't even know as much as we should about the drug itself in some senses. There is this early research that shows, hey, mushrooms might have some real therapeutic potential, but those same researchers will warn you, and so would I, that you should be very, very careful about getting and partaking in this substance because it is a very powerful drug. There are signs that it can really be problematic and draw out latent mental health issues. It should not be taken lightly at all. There is a real risk involved with taking psilocybin. Well, sounds like Colorado has a lot of work to do. Thank so you, Andy. <laughs> Thanks, Chandra. It was a pleasure. <laughs> That's CPR's Andrew Kinney. You may read Andy's reporting on the rollout of legal psilocybin at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The Southwest United States has been in a drought for more than 20 years. A big problem for the Colorado River and the people who use it. Parched. The new podcast from CPR News is about people who rely on the river that shape the West and have ideas to save it. We cannot just allow nature to disappear. Find Parched wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Alpine Bank. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The Club Q shooter will serve the rest of their life in prison. They pleaded guilty yesterday, closing one chapter for victims and their families, although the federal government is still investigating whether to file hate crime charges, which could result in the death penalty on a federal level. A few of the people who lost family members in the shooting and some who were in the club that night spoke after the hearing Monday. You're going to hear their voices now for a few minutes. We're Sabrina and Jeff Aston, and most people know us as Daniel's mom. Um, and dad. And dad. <laughs> I'm selfish. Um, yeah, we just wanted to say how appreciative we are to all the people, the DA's office, friends, family. Um, everybody has been really, really good to us. And we're glad that this part of our this journey is over. Um, it's not going to bring Daniel back. But, uh, think that uh, at least we got one thing done. <laughs> so, I don't know, did you want to say something? Uh, yes, we're, we're just thankful that we've uh, got this far in the process, and I, I'm uh, really glad that the federal government is still investigating this case, and I hope they uh, 
do press charges, and I hope we get a death penalty out of this because even that is more than this monster deserves. I just felt hollow. It's it's not enough closure, not even close. I'm Ashton Gamblin. I was the Club Q front door girl. Daniel saved my life. I really want to take an opportunity to thank the police department and first responders for being there as quickly as they could. Um, I do remember one of my first thoughts being, don't pull Uvalde, and being terrified if they waited that I would not make it. Um, you know, I suffered several injuries, and I go through a lot. Every day is a recovery day for me. Um, mentally is exhausting. It does help to have the Club Q family around. Um, but every day is just a recovery. My name is Ron Bell. I am the grandfather of Raymond Green Vance. My wife is Stella. This is, uh, me right now, I just want to show appreciation to the DA's office, to the prosecutors, to all of law enforcement for taking this from day one to the conclusion today. Very grateful. And I'd like to kind of deliver a message of hope, my hope. Hope that those who have younger people in a position of uh, trust, maybe we find ways to teach them appreciation, teach them tolerance, teach them to be welcoming to those around them, teach them to live and let others live. More of that might have had an effect on this. Thanks. You're hearing from people affected by the shooting at Club Q in Colorado Springs last November. Finally, outside the courthouse, KRCC's Abigail Beckman caught up with R.J. Lewis, who is a contractor with Club Q. Today, I feel like justice has been served legally, but I do feel like this man deserves what he must. I tell him, I've been saying all day, I hope he just, um, has to suffer the pain that we victims have to suffer every day. It's not a morning that I don't have to wake up thinking that five of our friends and family members from our community is no longer here because of him. Um, that all, many of our lives have changed, and I know mine has drastically within a 45-second period. So, like I say, legally, yes, justice has been served. One thing I've been telling everyone is that hate will not win, love will conquer all, and Club Q will, is going to keep going strong. You know, we're hoping that we open back in the fall. We're currently raising money for Memorial, which we're hoping to start construction next month or two. To memorize our friends, you know, that are no longer here, the victims, and the thousands of people all around this world that were impacted by this incident. Our community was hit with hatred, but love can, you know, love will conquer it. We'll be back after a break. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
Mount Sniktau near Dillon is easily accessible from Denver and Boulder, which makes it a popular hike. Before 1926, Mount Sniktau was known as Big Professor, then Engelman Peak. Sniktau was the pen name of Georgetown journalist Edwin Patterson, who said it came from Native Americans, but it was more likely the name of a fellow journalist, W.F. Watkins, spelled backwards and the W substituted with a U. The hike begins at Loveland Pass with a thousand-foot rise over the first mile. Undaunted hikers are rewarded with unobstructed views of Greys and Tories Peaks and the Gore Range. Even Breckenridge can be seen over the Continental Divide. The trail is entirely above treeline, so hikers may encounter snow at any time of year and strong winds at the summit of 13er Mount Snicktail. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of National Jewish Health. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The U.S. Supreme Court just ruled on a case based out of Colorado. At the heart of it, when do online posts cross the line from free speech to stalking? CPR Justice reporter Allison Sherry joins us now to break down this ruling, which, again, just came down this morning. Hi, Allison. Hey, Chandra. So what did the justices decide? Yeah, I'll I'll talk first what they said about Colorado's actual case. Um, They ruled that Colorado violated the First Amendment by incarcerating a man named Billy Ray Counterman for sending hundreds of thousands of messages to a singer-songwriter who at the time was based in Littleton. The, The Supreme Court says the state should take into account or should have taken into account whether Counterman or any messenger really, actually intended for those messages he sent to be true threats. At the time, the man's attorneys say he was mentally ill and he didn't understand his messages to be scary. So Colorado violated this man's rights. What do prosecutors or the police need now to get a conviction in a case like this? So it's I'm going to talk a little legalese here. The quotes, the court said that, quote unquote, they need a reckless standard. Um, to exist in cases like this. This would mean essentially that the state in a criminal trial of stalking or harassment is going to have to prove during that prosecution that the speaker or messenger intended to do some harm or that he had a reckless disregard for the person in that communication. That's a higher standard than Colorado has now. Mm. And Justice, yeah, and Justice Kagan wrote in the decision that um, in order to prevent a chilling effect on free speech, that states need to reach this higher standard, that someone knows what they're doing, that they're intending harm to get a prosecution. So Colorado essentially lost his case, right? That's right. This is not the outcome that Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser was hoping for. And in fact, in a statement he just put out a few minutes ago, Weiser called the ruling a loophole for delusional and devious stalkers. And he says this decision will make it more likely the victims of threats, who are mostly women, will live in fear. Allison, you've been following this case for months and you were at the Supreme Court for oral arguments. Remind us again of the details of the case. Yeah, in April, um, the state argued in front of the justices that it was correct in convicting and imprisoning 
Billy Raymond Counterman after he sent a musical performer named Coles Whalen hundreds of thousands of messages via Facebook over several years. She always blocked him um, at those messages, but he would create new accounts and send more. Some of the messages were harmless. Others say that others were kind of more aggressive. One couple of them said that she should die. Weiser argued to the court, or Weiser has argued, and, and the Solicitor General actually made the made the arguments at the time, that the volume, the frequency, and the tone of the messages, along with how Whalen perceived those messages, um, that the state was right in sending him to prison because threatening messages are usually the start of something much worse. Requiring specific intent in cases of threatening stalkers would immunize stalkers who are untethered from reality. It would also allow devious stalkers to escape accountability by insisting that they meant nothing by their harmful statements. This matters because threats made by stalkers terrorize victims, and for good reason. 90% of actual or attempted domestic violence murder cases begin with stalking. What about Counterman? What did his attorneys claim? Yeah, his attorney is a Washington, D.C.-based um, guy named John Elwood. Um, he said that he worried imprisoning people for messages that they didn't intend to be threatening could have a, a really big chilling effect on America's free speech protections, especially when you think about this in an elected official context, right? Like you're sending a message to your mayor and you're saying, I I really am really mad about what decision you made and, and you know, could you be thrown into jail for sending a message like that. He says, this is a really big slippery slope. We shouldn't be able to throw people in jail for sending a message that someone else may find um, offensive. He also said on the Counterman case itself that Counterman was mentally ill. He did not ever intend to be threatening to Waylon, nor did he understand that his notes were scary. Criminalizing misunderstanding is especially dangerous in an age when so much communication occurs on social media which brings together strangers in an environment that removes much of the context that gives words meaning. And it chills expression by imposing prison time on speakers who do not tailor their views to suit their audience. So at the time Counterman lived in Denver when he was convicted, he served more than two years in prison uh, for, this, for this crime and um, a year on parole for sending hundreds of thousands of these messages. Um, he's out now, though. Now you spoke with Waylon as this case mm-hmm. was unfolding. Where is she now? Waylon's now in her 40s. She chose to leave Colorado after Counterman went to prison because she was so emotionally upset about this entire ordeal. Um, she It went on for several years before she even called the police. And she told CPR News um, in an interview she did that it was among the most harrowing experiences of her life, that she still isn't over it. And years later, I find out that it's actually not over, that the Supreme Court's going to review the conviction. And I am just astounded. I I cannot believe that this is happening to me again and that the implications of that are even greater, far greater than they may have been in this first trial that I went through. And after what I went through and after what my family's had to go through and considering the clear, long-lasting harm that this has had on me, I just can't believe that anybody would question whether or not this is a true threat. Now, Allison, we know you're just getting a chance to review today's ruling, but do you have a sense of what might happen next? 
you know, I don't know exactly what's going to happen next. The state has now, you know, officially violated Counterman's First Amendment rights. So I imagine his attorneys could go to a judge and ask that his record for this conviction be wiped clean. You know, he's already wrapped up his prison sentence, so it's not like he's going to be let out of prison right now. I also spoke last week to the state's lead public defender about the potential of this decision coming down. And she said the possibility that defense attorneys across the state could look at people currently in prison serving time right now and see if this new standard that they were convicted of could try to get them out of prison may happen. You know, there could be individual cases that could be vacated um, or that uh defense attorney would have to go to a judge and say, look, this is this person's in prison and shouldn't be. Um, that could happen. I think it's just going to be kind of a to be determined and I'll keep following it. Allison, thank you. You're welcome. CPR justice reporter Allison Sherry on this morning's decision by the U.S. Supreme Court in Counterman versus Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Celebrate Pride Month with Indy 1023. Celebrate love and community, visibility and progress. All this month, show your pride and listen to Indy 1023. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Food can be a gateway into our identities. For people moving to this country, it's often a source of income as well. Today, we start an occasional series called Entree about the role food plays in the immigration stories of people here in Colorado. CPR's Elaine Tassie met a food truck owner who talks about her Lebanese background and where her love of cooking began. I was leaving an acupuncturist's office in Denver recently, and a couple of doors down, I saw a food truck selling Lebanese food. I met Siham Halimi, who was chatting with her customers while serving from her truck. It's called Laziz Ya Lebanese. The food looked appealing, but what was more compelling was how talkative and open she was and how excited she was to share her food and answer questions. And I had so many. She agreed to an interview, and a few months later, we met at her daughter's house in Aurora. She'd prepared platters of food for me and two colleagues and was waiting to have us taste it as soon as we walked in the door. This is a baba ghanoush. We made it with roasted eggplant, real roasted eggplant. We roast the eggplant and then we peel it and then we mix it with, you know, tahini sauce, lemon juice, garlic, salt. And this is the hummus, which is, pop. everybody know about it, <laughs> with chickpeas. But I do everything from scratch. We don't use cans. So I bring the chickpeas, put them in the water the night before. Next day I boil them and then I make them in my food processor. Commercial one. Yeah, because I make big, big amounts, so I can't be on a small one. And the uh, other ones you're seeing there is uh, the fattoosh salad and on the right and the tabbouleh salad on the left. And in the middle, this is the grape leaves, which is vegetarian too. I'd love to taste the food, but I'm going to wait a bit so I don't get distracted from why we're also here, which is to find out about the relationship between her food and her culture back home in Lebanon. I asked Halimi what her childhood was like. I was in private school all my life, you know, like pretty much stayed there, like private school, like you where you live, like you eat, you you sleep and you study there pretty oh, much until I graduate. Yeah, boarding school uh-huh. until I graduate uh, college. She started working in an accounting office. One day, a man came in to donate to a charity, and that donation set her life on a course from Lebanon to Colorado. Usually in Lebanon, when you donate, you have to give the check, they give you a receipt. So I was doing the receipt for him so he can take the receipt because he he put the donation. So you give them receipt, Mm -hmm. that's you receive this amount of money from them. 
I ignore him, but he turned around and he asked the lady outside the office, who is she? Is she married? Is she engaged? Is she, and is she have a boyfriend? I said, where is he coming from? We don't have boyfriends here. We don't have boyfriends in Lebanon. You don't have boyfriends. You have either engaged or married, no boyfriends. Uh -huh. So, and he asked me for my, my main name. There, in Lebanon, you don't have phones, pretty much. This is back in 1990. Barely anybody have a phone. Uh -huh. So I gave them just who I am, my name and my dad's name. It turns out he was Lebanese. He had moved to Colorado and was visiting Lebanon when he met Halimi. And he was 18 years older than she was, an age gap which I soon discovered was not uncommon. He was normal, like he's like maybe like 5'4". Mm -hmm. Okay, he's cute, like he have a baby face. And that time I thought he's 35, to be honest with you. But he, told me, he said, no, I'm 42. He's, he's too honest. He just direct tell you everything. Just 15 days later, they skipped the boyfriend-girlfriend thing, since that doesn't really exist in Lebanon, and they got married. Halimi says it was traditional to the local culture. Instead of shower, you do like a kind of like a, a party the day before the wedding, the night before the wedding, for the guys and, late, you know, girls and teenagers and, you know, guys, and they dance till morning, and next day you just go to the early to the beauty shop and do your hair and makeup and all this and come home and... And then they take you from your hometown to his hometown with cars and the first the car with the groom and the bride has to be all flowers and decorated and then maybe like 50 car behind you and all peeping. Yeah, it's kind of like a, the whole enchilada pretty much. It's really nice. So we get married, he came here and long time ago the visas used to used to take really quick thing, like seven months. Mm -hmm. And I came and you know, was little, now I'm 57, so I pretty much lived here more, ha more than half of my life. She already spoke English, much to her new husband's surprise. And first time we came, when I came to the United States, he tried to put me on those second language, second, um, those language you put like for level one, level two, and they kept moving me to level five. Come on, I'm educated, and I, we learn English from Lebanon since, from preschool. Mm -hmm. So he thought, I need that. So they said, no, we have level five, and she's above that. She need, so, and then I went to college straight. And then the lady in college, every time she want to ask me a question, he tried to, he tried to help and answer her. She said, Dad, can you please leave her talk? He said, I'm her husband. So he got a lot of those beginning. He said, if they keep telling me that, I'm going to slap someone. He get upset, but <laughs> he got used to it. The age difference between them wasn't strange or even new for Halimi. If anything, it was minor in comparison to her parents. Her father was 51 years older than her mother. When Halimi came to the U.S., it was 1990. Her husband worked as a hairdresser. She got pregnant and her mom came to Colorado to help with their kids so Halimi could work. Her career didn't start in cooking, though. She managed a bank at first, but when it was bought by another bank, Halimi got laid off. Her goal had always been to have her own business, and for years in Colorado, she had craved the food she grew up eating. She looked for Lebanese food in Colorado, but couldn't find it. The layoff and the lack of local Lebanese cuisine sparked an idea. Either if you cook it at home, you always want to go out, right? And uh, what do you, you want to look for since you're coming from way, like what, travel beyond the ocean? You come to the United States, I want to look for something I really used to eat. Either if I do it at home, I still want to go for shawarma. Maybe I don't cook shawarma at home, you know? Uh, yeah, I used to go crazy. Every time they tell me like a restaurant open, I go crazy to eat, but I wouldn't go back. That's because she was always disappointed. But the disappointment led to a positive change. 
she decided to switch from banking to baking. She returned to Lebanon for a crash course in the art of Lebanese pastry making. I learned how to bake the baklava and all good stuff. But since I came from family who do, my mom, she was, my, my husband used to tell me, your mom, if she boiled the water, it tastes very good. So I came pretty much like my mom and my grandma, they are the wonderful and cook. And people, they would call them to come and do their jams and all this good stuff and mm-hmm. pickles and cook for them if they have a wedding. So I thought, okay, well, I want to teach people in Colorado how really show them how really ethnic Lebanese food can be. I did pay a pastry for a while, so I named my first business. It was International Pastry and Bakery. Uh-huh. I did uh, products for Arash Market a lot, like packaging, like, you know, Namura, you know, sugar cookie and all good stuff for a while. And then I said, that's not, no, I want to do the cooking. I want to do the food. Mm-hmm. Then I decided to, uh, to buy the food truck. So you opened the truck in 2018, right? Yes. Uh-huh. So what was the first um, couple days like for you? You don't want to know. It was. I almost have a heart attack. What? What happened? The first couple days, I pick up the wrong. T- um, I thought I have to. Somebody told me go downtown and you buy, you purchase the meter. You know the meter place. You know where you put money on the meters. Oh, uh-huh. So you go to the city of Denver. You put, you purchase, uh, like you, you buy two meters, like because of the food truck is big. You buy two meters for two nights, Saturday, Sunday, mm-hmm. and then pay it. And then what they do, they come and they put like yellow bag on it. So it's, co- is, this is cover for you. Mm-hmm. I park for two nights. I make seven dollar and fifty cents. That time I said, what, what happened to me? And I'm, I'm a provider. So I'm a, the person who have to provide for the family. Of course, I'm going to have a heart attack. I, 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 have a, I was panicking. I said, this is it. Maybe I'm not going to make money. What's going? I mean, I'm sure about the food I'm making, but what? And this is what that's it. And after that, I start, I look, I start looking online everywhere, how I'm going to get, and I get to trucksters. And I start, you know, putting things, my word out, you know, breweries and something like that. And, and now, after that, start being word in mouth. So how long did it take you to... To get to the point where you're at now, where well, you can depend on... Well, to be on... honest with you, after that, that year, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad. 2019 was good, and then pandemic came in 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I hate to say that, but it wasn't bad, too, for me. It was maybe because of the restaurants closed or something. We were swamped. 2020, 2020 2021, 2022, it was like this. Yeah, it was really, really good for me. I love cooking and I love people and I love uh, the people loving the food and I love it when um, when people come and eat it and they come back and say how awesome they are. I, I want this this uh, Lebanese food to be really this is what Lebanese food is. I want people to see Lebanon and through the food. I wish I wish sometimes I can put a lot of things on the track to show how <laughs> Lebanon is but like what would those things be that you would want people to see? How's Lebanon? You know, some people, they don't even know how Lebanon is. They think maybe it's desert. Lebanon is like a Paris. Like they call Lebanon is the bride of Middle East. It's like Paris. I mean, after all this war, you hear now, if you're sitting here, you hear on the, on the radio, oh my gosh, this bomb and this happened here and this happened there. You go next day, you wouldn't believe it, this happened. It's like pretty much like shy at night. It's just like people on the street, hookah, you know, smoking hookah, on the beach, dancing. And you can see pretty much parking lot like this, people parking behind each other, doors open, music on loud, dancing on the, on the, on the beach, you know. This is, this is what is living on this. 
And that brings us to the dining room of her daughter's house in Aurora. The table is covered with salads, with mint and parsley leaves, hummus that's smooth and sprinkled with olive oil and sumac. My colleagues and I finally get to taste her food now that we know her backstory. She's impatient for us to try it. This is a falafel. Uh, this is, we make it with chickpeas and fava beans and beans and uh, cilantro, parsley, cumin, all good stuff. I make all my sauce, I make everything. That's the plate. Okay, thank you. So you can stuff, you can either, but if you want, you can stuff some tabbouleh or some fatouche with this, with falafel. We put in some uh, turnip, it's very good in falafel. And they are really good too. Let me put some tzatziki sauce for you. Okay. And you can just go and have to sit down. You okay. wanna? <laughs> Okay, I'm so excited. I already took my lipstick off so it wouldn't um, smear onto my pita. Mmm. <laughs> oh my god. It's so delicious. You said that you love to cook. I think I have a grape leaf in my tooth. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I was just wondering, like, what made you start to love it? Me and my mom, we always cook. We cook, uh, not just this, we cook like I'm talking about okra, I'm talking about the lima beans with really big meats, chunk meats, tomato sauce. We cook uh, <laughs> zucchini, we stuff zucchini, we stuff green pepper, we stuff eggplant. We do a lot of things. We pretty much cook every day. You have like maybe two, three items on the tables, you know, and the, the kids, they raise on that too. Mm -hmm. But what made me really open food truck not restaurant first because it's not 24 7 second is low overhead and third i want people in colorado to really try that real authentic not everybody puts some stuff and they say this is authentic food that's not authentic food authentic food to use everything from scratch not just a little bit of it so when you're cooking what are some of the things that you're thinking about while preparing a recipe that's how people come in and eating it and put smile on their face and say i love it that's what you think about when yes. you're preparing your yes. food? Yes. About later when yes, somebody's going to And taste I fall it? in love every time I make some dish, I fall in love with it over and over. Like it's not like one day I feel and if something I'm not happy with it, I wouldn't feed it to anybody. It's been really great talking to you and thank you for letting us come over and eat all your delicious food and ask you a whole bunch of nosy questions while we did it. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. Siham Halimi's food truck roves around Metro Denver. It's called Laziz Ya Lebanese, which means delicious Lebanese food. That was CPR's Elaine Tassie. Her conversation is part of an occasional series we'll air on CPR News called Entree, about the role food plays in the immigration stories of people here in Colorado. <laughs> It's pretty apparent that most office workers enjoy the perks of working from home. That means a lot of Denver's office buildings are sitting half empty a lot of the time. So what's going to happen to all of that empty real estate? CPR business reporter Sarah Mulholland says one thing's for sure, those buildings are worth a lot less money than they were before the pandemic. She spoke with CPR's Andrew Viegas. So just how empty are the office buildings in downtown Denver? Well, according to CBRE, a real estate company that tracks this data, about a quarter of the office space in downtown is vacant. Wow, a quarter. 
Yeah, so that means the landlord has no tenant in that space, no rent coming in. And on top of that, a lot of companies that are paying rent are trying to get other companies to take the lease off their hands because they're just not using the space. Now, this can't all be because we went remote during the pandemic, can it? Well, yes and no. There are other things happening, like the slowdown in tech has a lot of those companies cutting space. But the switch to remote work is probably the biggest factor. And remote work does seem to be here to stay. So what happens next with all these office buildings? Well, what's already starting to happen is that the value of these properties is falling. And in some cases, it's pretty dramatic. Take Republic Plaza. Anybody that knows Denver probably knows the building. It's the tallest in the state. It's big and silver and has been a prominent feature of the skyline since the 80s. Right. Sure, I know it. Yeah. So, well, recent loan documents for Republic Plaza show that it's worth hundreds of millions of dollars less than it was a decade ago. There's a lot of vacancies, and it's not clear what the landlords can do, if anything, to turn it around. Vivek Saw is the director of DU's Burn School of Real Estate and Construction. And he says a lot of buildings in downtown Denver are facing a similar fate. And he doesn't expect the trend to reverse. The value is not going to go back to what it used to be. That definitely sounds like bad news for landlords. But what does that mean for the city? It's not great news for Denver either. Property taxes are important for the city's budget. And office buildings accounted for 20 percent of the revenues generated by property taxes in Denver County last year. So if values fall, obviously, that means those tax revenues fall too. If hundreds of millions of dollars in property value evaporates over the next several years, that could mean the city eventually has to find the money somewhere else. So is this something that we need to worry about in the immediate future? Not necessarily. Um, Just like homeowners, commercial property owners recently got a new assessment in the mail. Now, most office landlords aren't going to see their tax bill jump like homeowners, but values didn't fall off a cliff either. The county assessor says office property prices were pretty much flat compared to the last assessment, which was done in 2020. Is that typical for office property values in Denver to be unchanged over the course of two years? It's really not. Um, So, in fact, before the pandemic, Denver was booming and the prices for office buildings were going through the roof. In 2019, prices were up 14 percent. And in 2015, the spike was even bigger, almost 40 percent. Oh, wow. So that's a that is a big reversal. What are people saying about what happens the next time property values are assessed, which is in two years? It's difficult to predict right now. Businesses are still kind of figuring out the best way forward when it comes to how to use office space. Office leases aren't like apartment leases. They're long, like five to 10 years. Um, So experts say the picture will become clearer as more leases expire and companies are kind of forced to decide what to do. Uh, Most likely, a lot of companies won't renew or at least they'll cut down on the amount of space they're leasing. And that's when rents will really start to fall. Okay. So wait, does this really mean that all the office buildings in downtown Denver are eventually going to lose half of their value? Probably not. Newer, more modern buildings are doing better than older buildings at getting new tenants. So that's a bright spot. But there's a lot of old buildings in Denver, like Republic Plaza, and it seems inevitable those values are going to drop substantially. CPR business reporter Sarah Mulholland speaking with our colleague Andrew Villegas.
Thanks for joining us today. I'm Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.